Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 5 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. My name is Ben Miller. I'm a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. And my name is Hugh Lemmy. I'm a writer and author. And last week, we talked about a uh, gay conspiracy at the heights of the German imperial court. What are we talking about this week, Hugh? Well, Ben, uh, are you ready to have your, your timbers shivered and your main brace spliced? Because today we're talking about the Irish pirate, Anne Bonny. Today's subject, I guess, is uh, she's a mysterious one. She's a, is a historical figure, without any doubt, but someone whose life and reputation is um, very in, so much entwined with a, a world whose true nature is, is confused by, by the propaganda of the time, by romance, by mythology. And so teasing out the truth from the fabrication, um, both by her enemies and then later by her supporters, is, is quite complicated. But um, there is some stuff we do know. Uh, I mean, Anne lived a criminal life, so as such, there are some very firm facts about her life that are recorded in trials and testimony. Um, but there is also, by by its very nature, a lot of confusion. So I've tried my best to tease out what is probable and supported by evidence um, from what is fantasy and fiction. Um, but knowing for sure all the details of her life is impossible, so I guess this will come up when we discuss it. But that said, what I hope we discuss will touch on these wider issues brought up by her life about about gender, about class, and about sex in the golden age of piracy. So given that the states of piracy within the Western imagination, you'd, you'd be forgiven for thinking really that piracy was this, this huge phenomenon that lasted for centuries as a large part of transatlantic life. But in reality, the so-called golden age of piracy lasted only about 80 years from 1650 to the 1730s. There's a very good reason why piracy emerged as such a powerful phenomenon that it was, and at the moment that it, that it did, um, which we can discuss. But but first, we should talk a little bit about Anne Bonny's early life. She was born probably in 1697, so right in the middle of the Golden Age, in Cork, in Ireland. And she was the illegitimate daughter of a lawyer, William Cormack, who was sleeping one of, with one of his, his servants, Mary Brennan. And William Cormack moved to London. And he was very fond of his illegitimate daughter, so he took so he took her with him, and dressed her in boy's clothing and called her Andy, in order to work as his clerk. But his wife discovered the deception and the affair, and in the scandal that followed, William was forced to emigrate to the American colonies, taking his maids and the young Anne with him. They settled in the colony of Carolina, in what was then called Charlestown, now Charleston, uh, which was an English settler colony. William tried to rekindle his law career, but he wasn't very successful at it. So he reinvented himself as a merchant and he did considerably better for himself. And he purchased a plantation near the settlement. So Anne Bonny grew up by most accounts uh, as what is euphemistically called a handsome young woman. She was, she was very tough, uh, good looking, and she really took no shit. Um, she had a number of lovers when she was young. And when another young man tried to force her to have sex, she beat him so badly he, quote, lay ill of it for considerable time. Charleston at this time was the fifth largest settlement in the English colonies, a, a prosperous town with links to the Caribbean and to Europe. However, it can't have been a particularly nice place to live. It was notoriously difficult for European residents who frequently fell ill due to the mosquitoes that inhabited the swampy area. When Anne was a teenager, a terrible hurricane hit the town and the storm surge from it flooded, flooded Charleston. And then poor governance of the settlement also led to a sort of poor defence. And when Anne was 21, the famous Blackbeard blockaded the town for a week from the sea, capturing hostages and extorting the governor for the medicines that he needed for his crew. The names of pirates like Blackbeard sit in this strange place in the popular imagination. They seem so romantic, they're almost like fictional characters. But it, for this short golden age, piracy was a real-world phenomenon whose realities almost exceed the swashbuckling fantasies of Hollywood's golden age. Blackbeard, for example, was a real man, Edward Teach. Teach operated from his home base, the Republic of Pirates, which was a self-governing community of pirates who had taken over the island of New Providence in the Bahamas after it was abandoned by English settler government. I think that was about four or five hundred English settlers still living there and probably one or two thousand pirates at the time. For those those law-abiding English settlers who were doing the Lord's work of colonizing the lands of Native American peoples and enslaving Africans, the pirates became this real genuine fear. 
a terror that was always lurking off the coast and threatening to raid and loot their homes. The, the thread that was attaching these colonies to the English mother country must have seemed extremely thin and always at risk of being cut. Traditional histories of British imperialism really dwell upon the territories that Britain colonised across the world for obvious reasons. But there is this other story, which is the history of the ocean itself, and especially of the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic is right at the centre of the development of European capitalism, um, especially in Britain, starting in this early modern era. So when the Spanish and Portuguese arrived in the Americas, they discovered these huge quantities of silver and gold, uh, this sort of in the early 16th century, And their early colonies were established in order just to exploit these natural reserves. And they began shipping these precious metals back to Europe. And in doing so, they increased the supply of money, of cash money in Europe. So in England, this had a number of different effects. First of all, it increased the amount of transactions that were happening. It brought more and more people into the market, as it were. People who previously would have been living subsistence lifestyles, i.e. surviving sort of in agricultural communities off what they could grow and barter. And this process was encouraged by the social and economic changes that were happening already in England. So throughout the medieval period, there was this complex system of common rights where peasants worked a land that was owned by a lord, and they would pay the lord either in some of the produce they grew or maybe some money that they um, that they got from the produce that they sold. But there was also land held in common, which landless peasants could use collectively, and certain rights around sort of foraging, fishing, and hunting. And in the Tudor period, this whole system began to be reformed. Wool had become a very profitable industry, and landowners could sell wool to people who then span and weaved cloth in their homes, and this became a very important export to Europe for the English, bringing wealth into the country. And landowners realised that if they took the land that the peasants were farming on this small scale and um, you know giving them the produce or some money, if they took over this land and turned it over to raising sheep themselves as a business – or also if they introduced new farming techniques for mass farming uh, that were more efficient, then they could make more profit and get more money. Also, following the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII during the Reformation, these vast estates that had previously been held by the church and managed by the church also entered into this economy in the hands of private landowners, usually um, nobles, friends of the king. So as a result of this, more and more people were being turned off their land that their family had worked for generations or even centuries and they had to leave their villages and go and find work in the cities. So this began this process of both urbanization, more and more people living together in larger and larger cities, and proletarianization, where more and more people had to work for wages in order to survive on a day-to-day basis. And so for those who had taken this land, which was often taken by force, they suddenly had this um, large amount of capital and also a large amount of workers whose whose need for money meant that they could um, be cheaply employed. So if you invested that money into factories, spending it on developing new weaving technologies, for example, you could employ these cheap workers and increase your profit. And as we know from uh, John D'Amelio's Capitalism and Gay Identity, this process of uh, proletarianization and urbanization is crucial for the development of same-sex sexual identities because people suddenly have... um, People, this this new urban proletariat has uh, the the even though they have very limited space and free time, uh, they do have a kind of uh, there's an urban anonymity uh, and a certain amount of uh, independence that that allow for the expression of non-normative sexual identities. Right. Yeah, and this is something that Christopher Chitty talks about as well in sexual hegemony, which is these like these changing um, workplaces and labor markets where you get more men working together. Um, as young sort of single men, for example, rather than within like a wider community. And that sort of like lends opportunities for the development of same-sex desires. So within this system, these the colonies, therefore, they, they played this very unique role for, first of all, the English, and then later in the early 18th century, the British economy, when, when uh, England and Scotland were united. They were there only to produce the raw materials that would then be sent to England to be processed and produce wealth specifically for the English. They weren't intended to be grown as sort of manufacturing centers themselves or urban economies that would, because that would give them far too much power. And yeah, they weren't supposed to, they weren't intended to grow any sort of political autonomy. They were there to sort of be taxed and also to provide a market for the goods that were being produced in England or then later in Britain. And so the British introduced this policy of mercantilism, um, 
And mercantilist policy prohibited these colonies from processing any goods or from exporting them to competing imperial powers, such as the French or the Spanish. And the aim was really to ensure that the English and then British exports were were always higher than they, their imports. And also very high duties, like custom duties, were introduced on any goods like tea or sugar or rum that was coming from rival empires. So again, the idea was to create these markets for English goods, which other, which other empires' goods couldn't get into. And basically to increase the flow of gold that was coming back into London to give more and more power to these English landowners and these new industrialists and entrepreneurs, these early capitalists. So it's into this world of inter-imperial competition that the first period of the golden age of piracy begins in the 1650s with the rise of the buccaneer. Buccaneers were sort of private soldiers. Their, their captains would be granted these things called letters of mark, which were sort of official permission from one government to attack and loot the merchant shipping of another government. So the, in the Caribbean, these were generally British, French or Dutch ships that were given license by their own government to attack Spanish treasure galleons or their onshore ports and bring back these huge amounts of gold and silver from the much more advanced Spanish colonies. And buccaneers were allies of the imperial system who only occasionally sort of spilled into outright piracy of attacking any ship of any nation. But by the 1680s, some 30 years later, this process had become to become a bit of a problem. The English colonies in North America and especially in Jamaica had become much more profitable as as their plantations sort of expanded. And then in 1672, the Royal African Company of England was given its charter to establish forts along the West African coast to ship Africans as enslaved laborers. So protecting shipping became more important than running these sort of like privateer operations. And this company, um, the Royal African Company of England, um, it transported more enslaved Africans than any other institution during the, the entire of the transatlantic slave trade. So as a result of this time, these pirates began to look outside of the Caribbean for more profitable hunting grounds. So while the English colonies were profitable for the English back in London due to this free labor that they provided, they, they held little, little wealth themselves due to England's mercantilist policies. Um, the main buccaneer port of refuge, which was Port Royal in Jamaica, where they could pick up supplies and sell their loot, then became unwelcoming as the island's new governor, Captain Morgan, who was a sort of poacher-turned-gamekeeper. He was this former buccaneer himself. He started to introduce these very brutal anti-piracy laws. So for the next few decades, um, buccaneers-turned-pirates instead looked to attacking shipping around the coast of Africa and then in the Indian Ocean instead. Um, it was in this brief period that the English pirate um, Henry Avery, or Avery, he managed to pull off the biggest pirate heist in history. He assembled this small flotilla of boats with these other pirate captains, and they managed to cap- capture a um, trading dhow, which belonged to the Mughal emperor, who was the, the boat was returning from, from Mecca. The boat was called the Ganji Sawai. And this was an absolutely colossal boat. Um, in addition to the 600 passengers and crew, there were over 400 armed guards. But through his combination of luck and skill, every managed to board the boat and his pirates essentially tortured and murdered everyone on board until they'd given over all their treasures. And then every and his crew managed to slip away that the loot, with the loot that they had managed, that they'd promised to share with all these other pirate crews. So he just, in the sort of aftermath, he got away with it all. And the amount that he stole is equivalent in today's money of almost $130 million. This actually proved a, a huge problem, one that would become a recurring problem for pirates across the golden age. It's just, how do you spend this much money when this amount of foreign currency would obviously mark you out as a pirate and lead to others grassing you up in return for a reward? But every somehow managed it, maybe by colluding with a corrupt government back in the Bahamas, who knows? But either way, unlike most of his crew, every actually got away with it and was never caught and never heard from again. Yeah, it's one of these weird uh, gray areas where a form of uh, statecraft, the sort of hiring of and encouraging of these buccaneers in order to disrupt the activities of other sort of states and colonizers, then ends up going too far and kind of looping back on and, and disrupting um, and destabilizing the, the state itself. And that's something that we, we see a lot even now. I mean, if you think as, you know, as recently as the 1980s that the you know, Western governments were were funding the uh, precursor organizations to the Taliban um, in order to destabilize the Soviets in Afghanistan, and then look what happened with that. Like this is a this is something that states seem to not be able to stop themselves from doing, even though um, 
the reaping always follows the sowing. Yeah. And also, um, there's an equivalent, I guess, in, in stuff to do with like the drugs trade and the government encouraging certain aspects of the drugs trade, for example, in Afghanistan and the knock on effects of, of that in terms of, um, you know. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. The sudden appearance of uh, <laughs> giant amounts of opioids in the United States timed right to when the US military began to occupy Afghanistan. It's a coincidence and nothing more. So for about a, so for this period of about a decade um, after the second era, of the golden age so from about about 1701 to 1714 there was a let up in piracy as um, there was a big conflict in europe the war of the spanish succession and that meant that there was a lot more work for sailors and privateers in european waters um however the, the war of the spanish succession uh, which is a fascinating period of history anyway but that's for another time uh this would be one of the most important influences on the period that was to follow, which ran from sort of 1713, 1714 until about 1730, which was this final and most important part of the golden age of piracy. And this is really the, the golden age that we see in, in books like um, Treasure Island or in Hollywood movies, you know, the, the sort of swashbuckling, plank walking, timber shivering age of piracy when the Caribbean was awash with pirate fleets. And the reason for this was peace. In the American colonies of the European powers, these huge stocks of goods have, had, had built up during the peace that was now possible to ship So for a few years afterwards. And in Europe, there'd been these shortages, which meant there was a, a huge demand. Um, the British, meanwhile, had won the uh, what was called the Asiento, uh, this agreement, uh, which was a monopoly granted by the Spanish to transport and sell enslaved African people to the Spanish Empire. Um, Spain actually didn't really run its own slave slave trade. It, it sort of um, sold it as a monopoly. So this this right also allowed the British to indulge in smuggling along the same routes, and and a few other rights uh, that you you got given that were very profitable for the British. But the most important impact of the end of the War of the Spanish Succession was this uh, huge number of demobbed seamen, men who had been serving on the boats, who now were no longer needed, so were just unceremoniously dumped. Um, according to Marcus Redeker, who is one of the most interesting historians of this period, um, in 1712, the number of sailors in what was now the British Royal Navy, the, the Act of Union had happened sort of during the war, the, the, it was just short of 50,000 men in, in the British Royal Navy. And then two years later, at the end of the war, that had dropped to less than 13,500. So uh, 38,000 men, uh, seamen, suddenly unemployed. And this is always a problem. Um, I mean, this is you know the, the maybe the, the the example strangely that is maybe most familiar to people um, who don't study this is the problem of the um, lordless samurai in medieval Japan. Uh, but yeah, this is always 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 a problem because you have these people who um, are trained and who are suddenly sort of thrown out and you know they tend to find things for themselves to do and those things tend to be somewhat disruptive sometimes disruptive but also for example in in england after the second world war the huge number of demobbed servicemen really contributed to the growth of the welfare state um so yeah yeah but yeah it can be super disruptive but well yeah and and fear of that disruption i think then is part of what helps lead elites to agree to certain kinds of class compromise. Oh yeah, there was there was some lord after the end of um the Second World War who sort of said <clears throat> in England who sort of said um we must give them reform or they'll give us revolution, which is probably true. Um as this there was this immediate sort of post-war trade boom, but then that dropped off very quickly or quite quickly. And as a result, the wages and onboard conditions within the merchant shipping fell very sharply. Um and many of the, the newly demobbed sailors they only knew a life at sea, and you know, they'd always been at sea. And despite despite their service in the war, they they didn't find any sympathy or support uh, in in peace, as veterans often tend to do. So, as a result, many of them took to piracy, and so began the third a third era of the golden age. And so, this was the the moment when Anne Bonny came of age. Her father, sitting on his plantation at one at one corner of the triangular trade of the, in the Atlantic, he'd grown rich, and presumably he was searching for a good match for his daughter in order to secure his legacy. But Anne, however, was in search of adventure, and she met a young sailor called James Bonney, and she married him against her father's wishes, leading to her being thrown out of the home. Um, James probably dabbled in piracy, 
And, um, and so Anne and her new husband traveled to New Providence, the Pirate Republic, sometime around 1714. As part of the British attempts to suppress piracy, they'd reclaimed the island, the, the, the British had reclaimed the island, and they'd installed a new governor called Woods Rogers. Rogers was a, um, was actually the captain who had rescued this marooned sailor called Alexander Selkirk, who had been stranded on a desert island for almost five years in, in the Pacific. And Selkirk was thought to be the model for the story of Robinson Crusoe that was written by Woods Rogers' friend, um, Daniel Defoe. But yeah, this by the by. Rogers was suppressing piracy from this island base. And according to some sources, James Bonney was an informant for him. And Anne disapproved of it, her husband being an informant. Yeah, that, that well-known uh, queer feminist motto, snitches get stitches. <laughs> yeah, right. So Anne, disapproving of this, starts to hang out in, in the sort of taverns of the island. And there she met and fell in love with a man called John Rackham. Now, John Rackham was a pirate captain, better known as Calico Jack Rackham, which is a, a really great name. And he'd won control of his pirate ship after submitting a vote of no confidence in its captain, Charles Vane, on account of Charles Vane's cowardice. That might quite seem quite surprising to us that you can oust a pirate captain by a sort of democratic show of hands, and we'll talk something about that later. But anyway, Calico Jack had become the captain, and he'd captured his new flagship. And he arrived in New Providence in 1719, a year after Anne had married James, in order to take advantage of the king's pardon, which was this legal mechanism introduced by George the First in 1717, so sort of ran for a couple of years, um, <clears throat> that promised pardons and an amnesty for any pirate turning himself in, which crucially said that they could sort of keep their loot. This was just one of the tools that was used by the British to suppress piracy. Calico Jack told Governor Rogers that he'd been forced into piracy by Charles Vane, and hating Vane, um, Governor Rogers chose to believe him and gave him the pardon, allowing him to keep this loot. So Calico Jack took to the taverns of Nassau, and there he met this handsome and unhappily married Anne Bonny, and they began an affair. Anne was pretty much done with James Bonny, and so Calico Jack tried to arrange a so-called wife sale, which was a not uncommon practice amongst um, people in the Caribbean at the time, where he would pay for Anne to be released for her, from her marriage in order to marry him. And this sort of maybe reflects the sort of myriad different forms of family life and attitudes to marriage that existed within these proletarian communities of the Atlantic. Um, and were, they were beginning to sort of be opposed by the bourgeoisie who were being worried about the sort of sexual lives and sexual ethics of working class communities. And indeed, when James Bonney took this issue to the governor and offered to buy his new wife, um, the governor threatened to have Anne whipped. So Anne and Jack instead decided to uh, elope, and they took up a life of liberty that was offered by piracy. They discarded Jack's pardon, <clears throat> and they stole a ship called the William that was moored in Nassau Harbour, and they took to the sea with his new crew. So what would life have been like for Anne Bonny aboard a pirate ship in this golden era of piracy? Like, I think we all have this idea of pirates that we know from these sort of swashbuckling films and, and novels as this very brutal, lawless world where these despotic pirate captains rule over their crews as a sort of tyrant. And this, this every man for himself ideology reigns. But we have to actually have to ask ourselves, is, is this actually true or even likely? Um, after all, if the pirate life was so brutal, why would the British state have to go to such efforts to suppress and punish pirates and to cajole and threaten pirates out of living that life? And in fact, much of this view of pirate culture is a myth that was perpetrated by these landlubbers and by the state itself in order to put people off. You'll remember earlier I described how Calico Jack won control of his pirate ship, not through murder or violence, but through a vote of no confidence. And this sort of gives some clues to the reality that actually within pirate society, there was some form of established order, a set of, of rules, and also beliefs and cultures and ideologies that structured pirate life and that set it apart from the world of the British warship or, or merchant ship that pirates had come from. And that's, that's for good reason. Most pirates actually began their working lives either as merchant sailors or in the British Navy. So these were these early proletarians who were relying upon their hands and bodies to make enough money simply to eat. And life aboard these deep seagoing ships was, was truly appalling. Firstly, the work itself used sailors' bodies as fodder in this vast machine of ropes and chains and windlasses and winches and what have you. 
this backbreaking work, you know, it, the work itself literally destroyed men's bodies. And that's even before you start to factor in the, the injuries, which were happening all the time, you know, the, the limbs b- being ripped out of your sockets by falling ropes or whatever, the, the crushed bodies by bits of machinery falling off and um, the danger of being washed overboard, you know, sickness, these icy storm waters that would flood the boat in the North Atlantic and so on and so on. And then secondly, on merchant ships, the treatment the treatment was, was terrible. <clears throat> there was terrible food, um, cramped quarters, lots of disease, very poor pay. And outside of territorial waters, the sort of three mile limit outside of um, outside of the you know offshore, the, the captain became this autocrat. He had total power on the boat, and the captain and the small team of officers would be in charge of maintaining order and discipline on these boats. So, sort of being thrown around in the ocean for months and being manned by many, many more rough proletarians. So they were constantly in fear of mutiny and insubordination or of the crew abandoning them in ports for a better life or so on, or of pirate attack itself. And so they kept order largely through violence. Were the captains typically people who had sort of worked their way up through this um, through this very hard life or were they? did they tend to have a different class background? And No, it was, a, it was a, it, people were commissioned officers on the basis of class. Yeah, like they- I see, okay. Yeah. So the cap. So in other words, the captain would have never. The captain would have never uh, done this other type of work. The captain yeah. was just a sort of petty autocrat who had no experience of the hardships that he was inflicting on these people. I mean, obviously, yeah. even if you had your own room on the ship and got to make orders, it's still not the world's most comfortable place. But it's a very different situation, yeah, obviously. Course, yeah. And the pay- and they were obviously paid a lot more as commission captains because of this responsibility. But yeah, the 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 the, the class system um, above aboard all ships um especially navy ships was was very hierarchical and the officer class were recruited from the the, the upper class yeah and is this where some of the sort of moral panic about the behavior of sailors comes from interesting question yeah i think to some extent but also um i imagine life was very sailors lived a very dislocated life so yeah like i'm, I'm sure like Part, part of the moral panic comes from the, the fact that, you know, if you've been at, at sea for six months or whatever, three months, and then you land and you have this money, you're going to um, go drinking and carousing and whoring, as it were. And that's just life aboard uh, the merchant ships. Um, on the Navy ships, life was even worse. The pay was lower and the discipline was often a lot more harsh. Um, beatings, half rations or bread and water or, or imprisonment on board the ship. Um, floggings with the cat of nine tails, often until the poor victim was was close to death, only to have his wounds then washed with salty water. Um, even being hung from the yardarm, which is even worse than, than a standard long drop execution, because rather than having your neck broken, you'd sort of choke slowly, swinging in the wind and the waves. And many of those who worked on naval ships hadn't even volunteered; they didn't even ask to be there. They were impressed which means that they were seized by these press gangs from their homes. They were often merchant sailors or people who worked on fishing boats and things like this, people who knew the sea. And they were seized by these press gangs from their homes in port towns and just dragged onto ships to serve for the Navy. Sometimes ships, um, naval ships would even stop merchant ships at sea and swap, you know, just seize the, the good sailors off the merchant ships and give them the the people that they had sort of impressed who were either you know like not very good at sailing or were were mutinous or whatever they just steal other people's um sailors so these people are like you know yeah they, they didn't want to be on these these boats they were forced to be so so one of the main problems for um for both the merchant ship owners and the british navy was not fear of their sailors being captured or killed by pirates but that pirate life was all too tempting for their mistreated workers in his book, A General History of the Robber- Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates, the writer, Captain Charles Johnson, records the words of the pirate Bartholomew Roberts, aka Black Bart, one of the age's most successful pirates who'd started his life in the Merchant Navy. And he said, quote, In an honest service, there is thin commons, low wages, and hard labor. In this, plenty and satiety, pleasure and ease, liberty and power. And who would not balance creditor on this side when all the hazard that is run for it, at worst, is only a sour look or two at choking? No, a merry life and a short one shall be my motto. Many pirates were recruited straight from the boats that they they were raiding. Uh, as soon as they got on board, they would sort of sort them out and take them. 
And so when they became pirates, they had no wish to replicate this social order of the British Navy or the merchant ships. They knew that the punishment, if they were going to be caught as pirates, was to be hanged. And so in, instead, they, they devised an entire new social order, one in which rights, rewards, and responsibilities were formally encoded, and which afforded the seaborn former proletarians a degree of citizenship and autonomy that they would never have encountered in the so-called honest service. These codes differed between crews, and they were known variously as um, Jamaica Discipline or the Custom of the Coast or a whole host of other names. But in signing them, the pirates accessed these rights and this democratic control and access to a fair share of the loot. But it also bonded the pirates together because those who had signed up and put their name on paper onto these charters had definitively signed up to piracy. And if they were caught, their charters could prove that they'd willingly adopted piracy rather than being forced into it. So execution was certain. So it bonded them together because, you know, like now they'd signed up for it. It was inevitable that if they were caught, they were going to all be killed, all be hanged. So, of course, they fought all the harder and had this extra sense of comradeship. So what did the pirate charters do? Like, what, what did they encode? Well, first of all, they, they almost flattened hierarchy. They, they rearranged the physical shape of the pirate ship. Nowhere on a ship anymore was not even a captain's cabin was out of bounds. And you could sleep wherever you wanted, go wherever you wanted. You know, it was open to all. And then the ship became this democracy um, that would actually probably be much more recognizable to modern listeners uh, as, as, as a democracy, even than the political systems of the day. Um, so the captain was elected from amongst the crew, but his authority was not absolute. It was countered by another elected officer, the quartermaster. So you sort of have a sense of a bicameral chamber, um, the, quartermat- the quartermaster acting as the second chamber who has these formal checks and balances on the power of the captain. And the, the powers of the captain are limited by the charter. Um, and often, in fact, the captain didn't even have that power. The, the, the captain's power to make commands and orders, et cetera, et cetera, was often just limited to the, the times when they were sort of chasing quarry and, and um, boarding ships. At that point, they had power to give orders and you know absolute power when you needed that discipline. But the rest of the time, power was sort of shared. The quartermaster also distributed the rations, but also the booty. And he also um, helped fairly determine who would be chosen for the boarding parties. Because if you were in a boarding party, you usually got first dibs on the, the weapons that you found. And the division of the rewards, the loot, was also determined in the code when you signed up. So normally everyone would receive the same share, except from the captain who received, say, two shares. The quartermaster who would get a share and a half. And often the, the doctor, the gunner, uh, and the bosun would maybe get a share and a quarter. Interestingly, quite often the doctor wasn't allowed to have a democratic vote because the doctor was seen to be from a different class position, you know, because normally if he captured a doctor, he would have originally been upper class. Um, so they, they weren't trusted quite so much. And then the various roles on the ship were often determined by these, these councils and their votes. And shipboard democracy developed sort of in different directions in different crews. Um, sometimes these council decisions determined all aspects, you know, of where they'd sail, what they'd plunder, everything that they'd do. Um, there were even pension provisions that were for the disabled that were built built into the into the codes. Um, you know that you'd you'd be retired basically with a certain share. Um, but there were rules, usually about settling of disputes to try and keep disputes to a minimum. Um, and also around other aspects of sort of health and safety. So like no candles in the hold after a certain point or, um, you know, no waving guns about. Um, and there were sets of punishments that were also encoded, but their punishments were usually to be marooned. Like your punishment wasn't necessarily to be killed like in, or executed. It was, it was just to be cast out of the group. This democratic ordering of everyday life was was a conscious response to the autocracy of, of non-pirate life at sea. And many of these rules directly addressed the deprivations that these sailors had suffered in the, the merchant and navy life. So, for example, um, they ensured access to food and to booze as a fundamental right. They were never again going to be hungry like they were in the navy. And the hostility to the established political order, which saw these Atlantic proletarians just used and exploited was really at the heart of a life of piratical liberty. And as a result, one of the jobs of the quartermaster upon capturing a ship was to inquire of the crew how their officers had treated them. 
And those who had been fair or lenient to their crew um, were often marooned or maybe put aboard a boat with some supplies or maybe even dropped off on the coast. While those who were accused of cruelty were sometimes tortured or even murdered in retribution for their behavior while, while, uh, while, while, while I'd been captain. It was sort of a response to their roles within the system. Um, in the words of Marcus Radica, quote, the sailor knew that trade was a unifying process of the world economy, that the ocean going ship was a machine, was the machine that made it possible and that his own labor made the ship go. So pirates were merely one form of rebellion within this process of, um, Atlantic class struggle. And we can see it in relationship to other forms of struggle from, um, rebellions by enslaved people in plantations or on slave ships. Um, mutinies, which often led to the formation of new pirate crews, and in strikes. Indeed, the very etymology of the word strike comes from the withdrawal of labour by dockhands who would go from ship to ship in port, lowering or striking the sails of boats so they couldn't function. Although most pirates were English or Irish, pirate crews were also often multi-ethnic, uh, including, according to Radica, formerly enslaved Africans who'd escaped their plantations and also indigenous people. So this is a life that Anne would have experienced when she became a pirate. But um, despite this sort of flattening of the hierarchy and this, this ideology, it actually wasn't common at all for women to be pirates. Number six in the articles of Bartholomew Roberts states, quote, no boy or woman to be allowed amongst them. If any man were found to be seducing any of the latter sex and carried to sea disguised, he was to suffer, suffer death. So clearly sex, uh, having sex, whether with a woman or with a boy, was too detrimental a liberty um, to sort of the common goods to be permitted aboard. Was the idea that it would sort of soften people and, and weaken the bonds between the, the pirates that were necessary to kind of survive on the ship? No, I don't think necessarily. I think it was more the disruption of having a woman on board. You know, it would cause fights amongst the men, essentially. It, it was detrimental to good order. But, it, but it's interesting that they stipulate boy as well, that, that sort of hints, you know, to, to, to some of the sexual aspects of pirate life um, and the attitudes towards homosexuality. So when Anne joined the ship, which um, she herself had 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 a hand in stealing, she dressed up in breeches and in men's clothing in order to pass as a man. And she carried weaponry and um, she swore like, um, well, a sailor, I guess. Captors of the crew would later testify that Bonnie was, quote, very, very active on board and willing to do anything. Pretty soon, Anne's wandering eye for the laddies uh, returned, despite her informal marriage to Calico Jack, and she found herself having the hots for this other man. He was about a decade older than her, and he was called Mark Reed. And so she decided to reveal to Mark the truth that she was a woman in the hope of seducing him, only for Reed to respond that she too was a woman, Mary Reed. And Mary's story was very similar to Anne Bonny's. Due to sort of parental shenanigans and also to being an illegitimate child, she was raised often wearing boys' clothing, um, or her parents pretending she was a boy, her father pretending she was a boy. Unlike Anne Bonny, she really embraced this role, and she ended up fighting for the British in the War of Spanish Succession, as a, as a man, as it were, um, before marrying a Flemish soldier. And then he died, tragically young, and so she rejoined military service as a man. Uh, and then when peace broke out in Europe, she boarded a boat for the Americas to find work. And when she was sailing to the Americas, she was captured by pirates and joined a pirate crew. She jumped at the opportunity. Now, here's where it gets a bit sticky. Um, most accounts suggest that, that there was a mutual attraction between the two, which led to Anne revealing her true gender to, um, to Mary. But only a few accounts suggest that the relationship then continued sexually beyond that point. Richter Norton, he recounts with some hesitancy that, that one account is that Calico Jack became increasingly jealous of this intimacy between these two pirates and burst into their captain. Obviously, he knew Anne was a, was a woman and, and he assumed that she was having an affair with Mark, as it were, and she, that Calico Jack burst into their cabin and found them both naked together. I'm not going to rule out that they were they were bisexual and sexually intimate. It may may well be true, but I do think 
with caution, it's maybe more fruitful to look at the sort of type of partnership that they might have fostered, um, both as women in an incredibly homosocial male environment and also as pirates. With regards to male homosexuality, I think it's fair to, <laughs> fair to say that it's a stereotype of a foot in reality to say that nautical life does lend itself towards sodomy um, by nature of it being this isolated single-sex environment. And also one in those days in which death was ever present. It sort of sharpens the mind as to one's desires somewhat. Death is coming. Take it up the ass. Is this the... I mean, more like you might die tomorrow, so why not? Yeah, I Um, suppose so. I also just wanted to to jump in for a second um, to give a brief historian's disclaimer about Richter Norton that may add some color to your qualification of his understanding of these events. Um, Norton is someone who has done an enormous amount of archival research and whose works always contain a really kind of rich archival, a rich base of archival evidence. And for that reason, we often um, talk about uh, Norton on the show. But uh, Norton is also someone who tends to amass that evidence into is very committed to amassing that evidence into arguments that are mostly about um, the fact that uh, gays have pretty much always existed in the same ways. And he's actually uh, written arguments that refer to the kind of constructionist theories of sexuality that we prefer on this show as a kind of anti-gay conspiracy. Um, And so it's worth, um, I, I don't think that means that we should discard Norton's archival evidence, but I think it just it's important to qualify his claims and arguments with an understanding of where he's coming from. Yeah. And also, to be fair to, to him, he, he qualifies himself the, the, the likelihood of this relationship actually existing um, based on the amount of evidence, archival evidence being quite slim. Uh, he offers it as a, as a, a possibility, which, which it certainly is. Anyway, back to the, back to the, uh, the male homosexuality on board. I mean, the, the presence of homosexual behavior within this confined space does also lend itself to the development of wider queer cultures between people right so in in sexual hegemony um the historian christopher chitty suggests quote the very same physical proximity and mixed live workspaces that made sodomitical encounters possible on ship and in jails also lent, lent it greater social visibility making it more of a target for discipline and punishment young men had much more freedom sexual and otherwise aboard the ships of pirates which explains why so many sailors of this period voluntarily joined such outlaw groups whenever their vessels were captured, end quote. Even centuries later, Winston Churchill, as the first Lord of the Admiralty, he was accused of sort of trespassing on the Navy's traditions, and he's said to have responded, don't talk to me about naval tradition. It's nothing but rum, sodomy, and the lash. And indeed, the existence of such harsh punishments within the Navy for sodomy suggested it was a big problem. And given the fact that so much pirate culture was consciously in opposition to naval life, perhaps it's fair to assume that there was a more libertarian attitude amongst them. After all, Bartholomew Roberts' pirate code brackets women and boys together as distractions to be led left on shore, specifically. You know, like you can have your boys and you can have your women, but leave them on shore. And there is certainly um, fragmentary evidence that the reputation of pirates at the time was as sodomites. Which I, I suspect that is both propaganda by people who are anti-pirate and also probably true. Um, one interesting phenomenon within pirate society that emerged within the buccaneers of the first era of the Golden Age and continued right through into the 18th century was that of metalletage. Metalletage was a union between two pirates regarding the inheritance of their possessions were one to die. In a way, it emerges as something like an informal will slash insurance policy. And the, the surviving Matelot was charged with, first of all, providing a portion of the pirate's inheritance to any surviving wife or children that they might have had, but also he inherited most of it himself. And over time, it seems the intensity and significance of the bond of Matelotage intensified. Certainly it appeared to colonialist society as a problem. Uh, the French governor of the island of Tortuga once wrote back to metropolitan France, asking for them to send 2,000 female sex workers to the island to combat the social phenomenon of metalletage, to break metalletage. In his book, Sodomy and the Pirate Tradition, Richard Berg descri- describes metalletage as, quote, 
an institutionalized linking of buccaneer and another, another male, most often a youth, in a relationship with clearly homosexual characteristics. Today, you, you see this quite often described as an early form of gay marriage, which I think goes, goes too far in projecting modern political concerns and sensibilities and justifications around gay marriage into a context to say, you know, it's always existed. I don't think it was gay marriage. Berg, for instance, he describes early metellotots as, quote, little more than slaves who were subject to exploitation, um, violence, and sexual abuse by their older or socially superior partners. However, he does say that as a practice, um, the practice was more widely adopted amongst pirates with this sense of uh, mutual obligation. And it, this led to a more equal form of the relationship, which then he says has this sexual dynamic, which I think sounds reasonable um, in a brutal and dangerous environment. The idea of a mutual union with another person provides this degree of sort of moral and physical support in times of danger, and also this degree of financial stability. And it would be natural if indeed homosexuality was even a little bit tolerated within libertarian pirate communities, that those bonds would sometimes exist with a sexual and romantic element. Robert Culliford, for example, was a, a very famous pirate quartermaster, and he was an adversary of Captain Kidd's. He was another pirate. Um, and he escaped from a Gujarati jail after four years with his um, matalot, John Swan. And the two of them then lived together in a pirate base in Madagascar. And Swan was described as, quote, a great consort of Culliford's who lives with him. So I think it's probably more fruitful to think about Anne and Mary within that context. Uh, yes, there might have been a sexual and romantic component to their relationship, but primarily, surely they saw each other birds of a feather, like these two proletarian women of immense courage whose fates were intertwined as women on a pirate ship. They, they ran the same risks and they probably found in each other someone they could rely on and talk to and understand each other. These sort of bonds, like uh, wife sale, metalletage, informal weddings, and so on, these all form practices of a proletarian, romantic, sexual, and economic culture that suited the needs of the people who lived within the Atlantic class struggle. These were largely proletarian communities. They were class-based communities, but obviously the, the nature of um, mercantilism didn't lend itself to supporting a large bourgeoisie in, in the colonies. You know, there, there, were, there were people who controlled things, but there were, there were a huge number of proletarians living under them who were developing their own cultures outside of, outside of the metropolitan um, em, uh, imperial centers. And so suppressing those romantic and sexual cultures was all tied in with suppressing piracy as an economic challenge to imperialism itself. And like all challenges to the imperial and racial order that was being established by the European powers across the Atlantic, um, it could be suppressed in the only way that imperial power knows how to, which is extreme violence. So the golden age of piracy comes to an end when when investment in military and policing become enough to protect their overextended trade routes properly, it was always profitable for them to run trade routes with the risk of piracy because there was so much wealth to be gathered from imperialism, from colonialism. So they were running these routes with the risk and all at the same time then trying to build up a large enough navy to suppress uh, and police those routes. And the British did this by extending the same legal policies that they were being they were being used to discipline the the sort of nascent proletariat in Britain. Piracy was included in the Bloody Code, which was this massive expansion of the death penalty in Britain to cover all manner of crimes against property. Um, I think at, at its height there were two hundred capital crimes in in England, two hundred crimes that you could be executed for committing, and these were crimes that were specifically against landowners and the ruling elites. And they often bought traditional rights like hunting and fishing, for example, into the category of a capital crime of poaching. So things that people have been doing for centuries on common land, the land was no longer common and the crime of, of, of you know, going out and bagging a few pheasants or partridges for your dinner was, um, was suddenly a capital crime, as was sort of other, um, other crimes that were like rioting or burning haystacks or civil disorder in various ways against the, the, the sort of social order. So the noose was tightening around the pirate's way of life, just as Anne Bonny and Mary Reed were, were adopting it. So they sailed with Calico Jack Rackham for little more than a year. Actually, a, a lot of pirates' lives were very short, obviously. 
And during this time, Anne and Mary continue to dress in men's clothing and take part in, in raids and captures with the rest of the pirate crew and were, were highly respected by the rest of the crew as fearsome fighters. At some point that year, Anne was said to have given birth to a child by Rackham and she was put ashore in Cuba to give birth, but she was soon back on board the rest of the crew and fighting without the child. But the Rackham crew were a wanted gang. Jamaican officials had had enough of, quote, our coasts being infested by those hellhounds, the pirates. It was October 1720, and the month started quite well. On the first of the month, they captured two merchant sloops and all their merchandise, valued at over a £1,000, off the coast of Hispaniola. They then sailed to Jamaica, and on the 19th, they boarded another merchant boat in the Bay of Port Maria, taking bags of pimiento and rolls of tobacco. A few days later, up the coast, they boarded and plundered the Mary and Sarah, and then attacked a local woman carrying provisions in a small boat, with Anne and Mary encouraging the crew to kill the woman. They actually let her go. The crew continued along the north coast of Jamaica, and at the end of October, they'd reached Negril Bay, where they dropped anchor and they started drinking, toasting their successful raids. But they had no idea they were being searched for. And while in the bay, two sloops, captained by pirate hunters, the English captain Jonathan Barnett and the Frenchman uh, Jean Bonavie, and Barnett approached, and as he did so, Rackham fired upon him. Barnet ordered him to strike his flag or surrender to the King of England. Rackham shouted back that he refused, and Barnet fired a broadside that shattered the boom of Rackham's boat, the William. As Barnet brought his boat alongside the William, he found that the entire crew were they were calling for quarter for mercy, and they had scurried beneath deck, even, even the captain, Calico Jack, and only two pirates remained on deck to fight, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. And Reed was so angry at the cowardice of her crewmates that she actually fired herself down into the hold, killing one of her crewmates. But it was no use that the two women couldn't resist the sheer force of arms, and the whole crew was captured and taken to Kingston to face trial. On the 17th of November, Jack Rackham and the ten men in his crew were tried at the Admiralty Court and sentenced to death. The following day he was to be executed, and he asked to see Anne one last time. She told him, she was sorry to see him there, but if he had fought like a man, he need not have been hanged like a dog. And he was hanged along with the rest of his men at Gallows Point, and his body was, was then hung in chains from the, the gibbet on a small island, uh, now called Rackham's Cay, just outside the bay, as a warning to others who might be tempted towards piracy. Anne and Mary, meanwhile, were set to be tried the following week, and they too were found guilty of piracy and sentenced to death. But when the judge asked if there was any reason they shouldn't be, they both, quote, pleaded their bellies, i.e. told him they were pregnant, and they were given a reprieve. Sadly for Mary, it was only temporary, and she died of fever, probably in childbirth, the following April. But for Anne, well, the truth is we don't really know what happened to her. There is no more evidence of her either living or dying in jail in Jamaica. And the historian David Cordingly claims that there is actually a happy ending that Anne's wealthy father then bribed the governor to release his daughter, uh, who was still in her early 20s, and she returned to Charleston with the son who she'd left in Cuba. And she uh, she named him John after his father. And then in Charleston, she then married a man named James Burley and had eight more children with him. And uh, according to Cordingly, she died over 60 years later in 1782, aged 84. Thanks so much to all our listeners, especially those who have shared and reviewed the show over the years. It really helps. And a special thank you to all our Patreon subscribers who really help keep the show on the road and allow us to keep making Bad Gaze. If you want to help support the show, head on over to badgazepod.com. And in return, there's a whole bunch of great rewards, including books and T-shirts. Speaking of books, uh, our book, Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History, is now available for pre-order from Verso Books and will be published in June of 2022. The book profiles 14 insidious inverts all the way from the Emperor Hadrian to the Dutch far-right politician Pim Fortown and uh, basically presents a long extended argument for why homosexuality didn't work and what we might want to try to do instead. Um, Now, every episode we're going to uh, talk about a different little sort of did-you-know fact from the book. And so today's is... Did you know that the godfather of the European far right rhapsodized about glory holes on television during his election campaign? 
even going so far as to compare the taste of semen to his favorite liqueur. They don't do TV interviews like they used to. For the full story, pre-order Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History from Verso Books, available now at badgazepod.com slash book. Well, thanks so much, Hugh, for for telling us that story. Um, I guess my first question for you has to do with a problem that comes up quite a bit, especially when we're talking about uh, figures like this whose queerness has been recuperated through that kind of uh, 70s uh, and and 80s generation of liberationist um, historians. Um, And that question is, uh, is there any evidence to suggest that there could be potential trans readings of uh, of this story. This is something that uh, many of our listeners will probably know um, happened quite a bit that, that um, stories that, that at the very least have a, have a trans, potentially trans sort of meaning or component got recuperated by liberationist historians. And so people who, you know, spent their entire life saying, uh, this is how much I was a man. I was a man. I am a man. Uh, and got executed for that in some, in some cases are then, um, kind of brought into a, a lesbian history in a very uncomplicated way. I don't think there's much, much evidence. I, like Obviously, that, that is a, a tendency within um, liberationist history. But in this case, I don't think it's the, heck, the case. There's, there's not much evidence at all for that. Like, the, the, they dressed as men in order to, from what I can tell, in order to, um, uh, for practical reasons, in order to, get onto the boats to survive or in order to fight in order to make money. I think it's, it's more worth seeing them within the reading of being proletarian women who had to do what they had to do in order to survive. Um, they were both quite keen. It seems from the little history, little sort of direct um, primary sources we have, they were both quite keen to uh, reveal their gender both towards each other and also towards men when they were not in that mode, as it were, you know, so I think I think the the dressing as men is first of all in order to get onto the the, the ships, and then even when they were sort of um, uh, out, as it were, um, they continued to dress as men. And a lot of the the reading at the time was purely down to the fact that it's much easier to work on a pirate ship in trousers than in a skirt. Yeah, which which I guess then opens up an even broader question, which is um, how much of all of this do we even want to ascribe to um, the idea of a sexuality, and how much of it just has to do with um, the the options that were available to them as as you said, proletarian women? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting to look at the that when they become branded as quote unquote lesbian pirates and why, and like I wonder whether. In the telling of like, in the telling of their story, there be- it becomes within sort of let's say bourgeois literature, um, a way of sort of um, stigmatizing this unwomanly, as it were, way of behaving. Um, so one of the interesting things is that this this Captain Charles Johnson, who I referenced earlier, who who wrote a lot and sort of helped to shape the idea of pirates as we understand them today, created this sort of popular Im- image of pirates in his book, A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates, which came out only a couple of years after um, Reed and Rackham died. Um, that that is a lot of historians think that that book was probably actually written by Daniel Defoe, who also wrote um, Robinson Crusoe and was sort of a progenitor of the early bourgeois novel form. Um, so I, I wonder if that fits in with, with this way of writing about women, proletarian women as sort of um, gender non-conforming adventuresses who were in some ways de- deviant in their sexuality, you know, like why do they, these women do this? And the sort of bourgeois reading of the time, and then even into the twentieth century, is oh well, they did it because they were deviants. They were either gender deviants or, or or sexually deviant. They rather than the fact that like they did this because they were um, bold uh, proletarian women who had to survive, and this was the the way they found to survive and live, live a decent life, and they just wanted to do these things, you know. And I, I wonder, in fact, whether because because the reading of them as quote unquote lesbian pirates and and um, 
in recent years, you know, like for example, there's, there was a, a statue made of him recently, and I was sort of reading the news coverage of it, and it was always everywhere lesbian pirates, lesbian pirates. I wonder whether that fits into the same sort of like fetishized, excited, thrilling sort of bourgeois. Uh, naughtiness, or that 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 continues in in right into the twentieth century. We get the same sort of impulse in popular culture in the twentieth century. You know, it's like it's not female, it's not nuns or female vampires. It's lesbian nuns, lesbian vampires, and lesbian pirates seems to fit into the same mold as that. So, um, I, and and to a certain extent, I wonder whether we are contributing to that ex- exact same thing by featuring her on this show. Uh, I don't know whether I don't know whether that's the case or not. I hope I've done a good job in saying that there's actually like very little evidence that they were quote unquote lesbian pirates, but that perhaps they 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 lived in a in a pirate world where there was um, a high degree of perhaps sexual liberty that they wouldn't wouldn't have been found in the um, the rest of society at the time. Yeah, and I think this may uh, be able to help communicate uh, to our listeners um, how you could have same-sex sexual contact without having anything that acts like asexuality in the way that we think of it now, right? That that uh, we may be able to confirm uh, or suspect that they had uh, genital contact even, but uh, that doesn't mean that uh, they would have then considered themselves as being quote unquote lesbians in the way that we understand lesbians to exist now. Right. The same, the same with potential like gay, gay male pirate, like homosexuality amongst male pirates. They, I, I feel like it's unlikely they'd define themselves as gay pirates as it were. I, I, right. I think also like it fits into this sort of way that pirate life was both, um, both uh, sort of stigmatized um, obviously, and also um, popularized in the in the immediate aftermath with books like um, like Charles Johnson's, um, as as being this sort of like like even at the time, pirates were were exciting for people, you know, and and the fact that they were women pirates, you know, like within the book, which covers a whole host of different pirates, I think there's four or five different only four or five illustrations of pirates in the entire book. And two of them were, were of um, these two women dressed in male clothing. So I wonder if it's also sort of being produced for this popular audience um, that gets as, as part of this sort of like renegade thrill. Um, it's also worth, of course, like thinking it in terms of um, wider culture at the time. So for example, pirates form a sort of popular part of like the, the, the body of popular opera um first of all uh, i think john gay's sequel to the beggar the beggar's opera was um sorry the Thre- threepenny opera beggar's opera threepenny opera beggar's beggar's no you're right threepenny opera is the brecht vile um brecht, adaptation yeah the beggar's opera uh the the, the 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 sequel to the beggar's opera was polly which is which also features a a, a woman pirate so so yeah like i think i think it's worth looking at the way that their sexuality is um portrayed as not just as potentially as lesbians but just as being sort of sex- sexual objects that provide an excitement for these um popular audiences and especially for bourgeois men who were the sort of um part of the part of the audience for written published works at the time yeah, and uh, and and just as in many other areas, the kind of threat of sexual deviation becomes a sort of titillating part of the threat of other kinds of deviancy. Yeah, and you can definitely look at it also, of course, within the way that sodomy was used in the construction of the sort of um, the justification for the subjugation of other people during by colonial forces, right? And I think I think what's quite interesting is the the way that pirates were portrayed at the time, right into the twentieth century, as being cutthroat and bloodthirsty, um, has analogies that, that are different because of the racialization, but has analogies to the way that um, there's so much projection from colonial societies onto their enemies. You know that like oh the pirates are the bloodthirsty ones who'll cut your neck and throw you overboard for the, the the mildest insult or whatever. Well, no, that was actually the Royal Navy who were doing that, not the pirates in the same way that, you know, like all oh, the, 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 the sort of indigenous American peoples, you know, Native, Native Americans were seen as being these like um, lawless um, sort of genocidal um, 
threats to to white people on the American frontier. And it's like, well, no, that was actually they were the victims of genocide by by the, the settler colonists. That you see this throughout these sort of depictions, which is like all the worst aspects of colonial society were then uh, projected onto these other characters as as threats that justified that violence. Right. Well, I mean, that brings us to what maybe here will be an even more interesting, um, more interesting uh, breakdown than usual. Because I think usually the answers are pretty clear: bad, gay, not bad, not gay, bad, not gay. How, how do we want to think of this person? How do we want to conceive of this person? Uh, I think on both forms, complicated. Like the, you, I wouldn't rule out either way that they they had a, a, a sexual relationship. It seems possible, if not likely, within the sort of libertine. Uh, a sexual life of, of piracy, given given what we discussed, uh, and bad or not, mm, um, I guess it depends what you think about pirates. I mean, like it, as, as rebels against a sort of um, colonialist Atlantic uh, regime, like I, I, I think they have a bad rap. Uh, I think they were they were sort of people who had uh, proletarians who had suffered. Uh, very harshly, and found car- tried to carve out a space of autonomy and freedom for themselves in a in a bloody awful world. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what are some sources that you used to um, research this episode, and what are some places that people could go if they wanted to learn more about? Uh... So uh, yeah, there's a there's a whole sort of host of of books on on piracy and on sexuality. So um, a general history of the robberies and murders and the most notorious pirates by Captain Charles Johnson, uh, as we discussed, um, is well worth a sort of look as, a, as, a, as an original source uh, written at the time uh, with a pinch of salt. Um, the History of Piracy, which is a sort of 20, early 20th century um, book which covers a lot of their lives by Philip Goss. Uh, Women Pirates and the Politics of the Jolly Roger by Ulrika Klausman, Marian Meinzerin and Gabrielle Kuhn. Uh, Women Sailors and Sailors Women, an untold maritime history by David Cordingley, I also used, and um, Sodomy and the Pirate Tradition, English Sea Rovers in the 17th Century by Richard Berg, which featured its original title, I, f- I found when it was originally published, was Sodomy and the Perception of Evil, which is a much better title. Oh, that is a much better title. God damn yeah. it. Uh, and lastly, uh, one which I cannot recommend highly enough, which is Villains of All Nations, Atlantic Pirates in the Golden Age by Marcus Redeker, who is one of my favorite historians um, who writes a lot about sort of reappla- reappraising uh, from a sort of class perspective, a lot of this transatlantic struggle at the time. And actually, if you, if you are into this sort of general history and the, of, of the time, um, there's a lot of books by Radica, which I can definitely recommend. Most of all, um, The Many-Headed Hydra by Peter Leinbauer, Peter Leinbauer and Marcus Radica, which is um, one of those books which totally reshapes the way I thought about history. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. You can follow the show on Twitter at Bad Gaze Pod. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy or my newsletter, hugh.substack.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad, 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 bad,